It's my real joy to bring you uh, today's Bible reading today uh, from Ezekiel chapter 39 and one of my personal favourite passages in the Bible, Revelation 20 and 21. And please grab your Bibles now and join with me as we read God's Word. Ezekiel 39. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. I will send fire on Margog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people in Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years, so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any out of the forests, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers, for there Gog and all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the Valley of Hamangog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of the seven months, they will make their search. And when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. Homanah is also the name of the city. Thus shall they cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, of the he-goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat fat till you are filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I'm preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. 
and the nations shall not know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them, and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I'll be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from the enemy's lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Please turn with me now to Revelation chapter 20, starting from verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be his people. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more for the former things have passed away. This is the word of God. Thanks for that reading, Andrew. A big warm welcome to everyone here today. 
Uh, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors of the church, uh, one of now three pastors of this church, and praise God for that today. Uh, it's my pleasure and privilege to bring uh, this word to us this morning. And if you're new here this morning, a big warm welcome. Uh, this might feel like a bit of a strange passage to be looking at, uh, at a particular gathering like this. Um, but let me just briefly say, SLE Church is a church which is committed to God's Word, uh, committed to understanding it in its context, in all its fullness, uh, committed to what we call or what is known as expository preaching. Uh, we are up to uh, this penultimate, the second last sermon here, now in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Ezekiel 38 to 39 today. Uh, carrying on, because it's God's word that sets the agenda for all that we do uh, and all that we look at. So uh, let me pray and let me ask God to bless us as we look at this word uh, together. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you so much that you do speak. And as we come now to this particular word, as strange and foreign as it may be, uh, we pray that for, for your Spirit's help, for your Spirit to illumine this passage for us, and for your Spirit to help us to respond as well. For some of us here, we ask that your word would challenge us to shake us out of the way in which we are living. Uh, for some of us, we pray that this word would comfort us to know that the enemies of this world will not prevail against us. And for others who still need further comfort, we pray that you help us to remember that in every trial, in every darkness, you are in control. So we pray, Father, that you'd bless us now as we look at this word. Help me to speak clearly from this as I ought. And we pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Picture, if you will, with me, the glorious return of Jesus. The judgment is finished. What we have just read is done. The new heavens and the new earth are now ushered in. Picture your body with all of its aches and pains, with all of its imperfections now transformed. Your body filled with an old and familiar youthful energy, now eternally so. Picture the brokenness and decay of this world now transformed, the dust swept away, the cracks healed over. Death is no more, there is only life. Sin and death and darkness are no more, there is only purity and joy and light. Can you picture that? Picture the things that you have longed for, the things you have missed out on in this life. Now just a faded memory as you see Jesus walking through the crowds, greeting everyone, making his way towards you. And before you can even blink, he is before you. The radiance of his beauty and is far greater than you could ever imagine. He speaks, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. Picture that you turn and you see your friends and your family who have put their trust and faith in Jesus standing there with you, filled with joy and delight. Can you picture it? Now, as you're picturing this wonderful and beautiful scene, as your mind casts over this amazing moment, 
a thought pops into your head. Could we stuff this up again? As amazing as all of this could be, could we end up messing it up all over again? Remember, Adam and Eve were perfect beings made in God's image, brought into God's paradise, and they rebelled against God. Could the fall, version 2.0, happen all over again? Uh, What's to stop? the cycle of sin and death starting all over again. What assurances can we have? And if there is a second fall, well, what does that say about God? What does that say about his ability to keep his promises? His, will his plans and his purposes forever fail because of the potential of human imperfection? You see, on first glance, as we saw, read out this passage in Ezekiel, This looks like just a a passage about a big battle, a big battle, an epic battle, but there are stakes higher than just who wins the war. This isn't simply a battle between good and evil. This is a battle about the decisive victory of God over evil. Decisive, final, ultimate. Well, this brings us to the first question. Who is Gog and Magog? Gog is the person. Magog is the place that this person rules over. So who is this person? The answer is very clearly not found on Google. Just don't, right? Speculation abounds. In the same way that speculation happens over the identity of the beast in Revelation and the 666 mark in Revelation, speculation abounds about who Gog and Magog are. Because of the relatively vague nature of the description of Gog, a precise identification is impossible. It's elusive. Some have suggested some ancient historical figures, but no one lines up closely enough to the description for anyone to be convinced. Some have even suggested that we should then just take a literal interpretation of the words in this text, correlating Gog and Magog with recent world events. I spent, I wasted some time yesterday listening to another pastor suggest that Gog was Russia, And some of the other nations listed here in the text were nations all around the Middle East. I'm personally not convinced of that, as I'll explain in a moment as we get into the text. But one of the reasons I'm not convinced is because an interpretation like that is really inconsistent. If Gog and Magog are literal representations of the nation surrounding Israel, then surely you must also interpret that they will march against Israel on horses, holding spears and clubs and shields, which in today's modern warfare seems a bit crazy and unintimidating. I think a better interpretation that makes sense of the context in Ezekiel and makes sense of the context in the Bible is to see Gog and Magog as representative of all human rebellion against God. Uh, There are echoes of Babylon in the description of Gog and Magog, but there are also general descriptions. Was that a reminder on the, all good? Okay, now that everyone's woken up. So as I was saying, there are echoes of uh, Babylon in the description of Gog and Magog. But there are also general descriptions of 
uh, all peoples, empires and nations who have rebelled against God. Uh, These chapters form a picture of God gathering and confronting everyone who has dared to reject God as their creator and maker, and especially all those who have oppressed and persecuted and killed his people. Chapters 38 to 39 in Ezekiel represent some of the hardest chapters to understand and to interpret, but let's see if we can make some sense out of it. We begin in chapter 38 with a very familiar start. You'll notice in chapter 38, verse 1, Yahweh speaks with Ezekiel, calling him son of man, and he tells Ezekiel to prophesy. So see in verse 2 that this time he is to address this person called Gog of the land of Magog. Gog is the prince of two lands, Meshach and Tubal. The message to Gog is simple in verse 3. If you haven't already, keep your Bibles open. Uh, We're looking at uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Have a look at chapter 38, verse 3. Uh, The message is simple. Yahweh is against you. Super simple message. Yahweh, the God of Israel, opposes Gog. And so this is what Yahweh will do. Have a look at verse 4. He will put a hook into the jaws of Gog and turn him about and bring him out. Hook him like a a fisherman hooks a, a giant fish using their rod and even the boat to maneuver the fish in for a catch. Along with Gog, hooked by the mouth, uh, are all of his uh, well-armored army and horses. And other nations surrounding us as well join in. Persia, Cush, Put, Goma, and beth Togorma in verses 5 and 6. Including Meshach and Tubal, you have here seven nations in total. I think another reason why we shouldn't take this overly literally. The number seven, remember, in prophetic and apocalyptic literature is the number of wholeness of completion. And so I think what we're to see here is a big and massive army representing all of those who oppose Yahweh, being gathered together in war against Yahweh and his people. See how frightening the picture is in verse 9. This combined army looks like a coming storm, like a cloud covering the land. Imagine you were in Jerusalem and all of a sudden you looked around the hills surrounding the city and they were covered in soldiers to hear the thunder of their footsteps, the noise of their armor clanging as they march, the deafening war cries and trumpet blasts. Terror would grip you at this sight. But notice one key important detail in all this terrifying scene. Yahweh is the one who has brought them out. Read with me again and notice the action being directed by Yahweh. Have a look at verse 4. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army. Jump down to verse 16, chapter 38, verse 16. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land. You see, Gog and Magog might represent a terrifying army of Yahweh's enemies, but it is Yahweh who is ultimately the one drawing them out. And why is this? Why is Yahweh directing the enemies of God's people to unite against God and his people? Well, in verses 10 to 13, we can find Gog's personal motivation. Have a look with me at verse chapter 38, verses 10 to 12. 
in particular. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. Gog has a very simple motivation. He thinks Yahweh's people, he thinks of Yahweh's people as a soft target. A land of unwalled villages. Uh, They they are not like Jericho with their big walls. No, no, they have no walls, no fence, no security cameras, no defense systems in place. An easy target. And when Gog hits them, he will grab all of their stuff, loot, plunder, and pillage a soft target. What an easy day's work. But sometimes what we think are simple plans turn out to backfire on us. Gog Gog looked at Yahweh's people and thought, easy and soft target, ripe for a hit. But the tables turn on them hard in chapter 38, verses 18 to 20. Have a look with me at verses 18 and 19. But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Now, notice in verse 18 that, there is, that Yahweh's wrath is roused in anger. We've heard this phrase before again and again throughout chapters 1 to 33. But in the first half of Ezekiel, the wrath of Yahweh was pointed at his people for their unfaithfulness. Now the wrath of God, 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 sorry, now the wrath of God is pointed at Gog in defense of his people. God will act in verse 19 in jealousy. He will jealously guard his people from attack, jealous for their safety and protection. Notice in verse 20 how all of creation will respond to this day. Verse 20. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground, all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall stumble to the ground. A few weeks ago, Melbourne and most of Australia woke up to, a, to strange scenes on the news. A magnitude 5.9 earthquake had hit Melbourne and the walls of Betty Burger's joint, uh, Betty's Burger's joint collapsed. Australians collectively freaked out a little bit because earthquakes are so rare here. But here in this passage, we have mountains being shaken down, cliffs falling down, and not just the wall of a burger place falling over, but every single wall tumbling to the ground. And all of creation trembles at Yahweh's, as Yahweh's wrath is revealed. How awful and devastating this scene will be. The battle itself won't be an even match. This is not George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali going eight rounds in the rumble in the jungle. This is a battle with a very, very clear winner. Have a look at verses 21 to 22. 
I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. This is going to be a massacre as, horde, as this horde of soldiers, which is covering the landscape, turns on each other. And to make matters worse for Gog, the heavens will rain down on them as well. Verse 22, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and, many, and the many peoples who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. This is a wipeout. Chapter 38 seems to be emphasizing the defeat of Gog and Magog. And as we flip over to chapter 39, we get repeated some of these same things, but it seems now to emphasize the victory of God. Chapter 38 opened with Gog being drawn out. In chapter 39, we see an emphasis on Yahweh being drawn out to battle. Notice again in the opening six verses, the references to Yahweh's involvement. Have a look at chapter 39, verse 1. I am against you, O God. Verse 2, I will turn you about. Verse 3, then I will strike your bow from your left hand. Verse 4, in the middle, I will give you to the birds of prey to be devoured. Verse 5, you shall fall, for I have spoken. Verse 6, I will send fire on Magog. Yahweh is definitely here in the thick of the action, drawn out into battle in opposition against Gog and Magog. Now, remember the last time we saw this language in the book of Ezekiel, it was Yahweh revealing his, as Yahweh revealed his holiness and power. But it was Yahweh doing this in destruction of his people, showing his power and holiness to the nations by judging his people. Now he is drawn out, flexing his power and holiness to the nations in protection of his people. But in case you think it's all about the protection of his people, think again, Yahweh's motivation goes beyond just protecting his people. See, littered throughout these chapters are lines and verses which bring us to the heart of what God is desiring, why he is acting, why he is smashing God, Gog and protecting his people. The reason harks back to what we heard last week in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And you can see it in chapter 39, verse 7. Have a look with me again. Chapter 39, verse 7. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will, let my holy I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One in Israel. You see the same thing in chapter 39, verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. Jump back to the final verse of the previous chapter, chapter 38, verse 23. Why does Yahweh, uh, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Why does Yahweh come to the protection of his people and smash Gog? Not just to save them, but because of his name. He is protecting the holiness 
of his name. See, Yahweh is utterly distinct. He's not just another God among many other gods. Yahweh is above, far above all other gods. See, the problem in the first half of Ezekiel is that his people did not live up to this reputation. They, the way that they lived and how they were punished brought shame and dishonor on God. It threatened to ruin his reputation. Uh, my wife, Steph, and I, we have three young kids in primary school. And we've begun discussions already on where we think we should send our kids when they get to high school. Now, sometimes when I'm at the shops and I see the teenagers from various high schools, I think to myself, do I really want to send my kids there? I mean, look at them. Some of these high schools have been very poorly represented. Some of these high schoolers have very poorly represented their schools. And so in my eyes, the reputation of those schools has diminished. The profaning of God's holy name is like that, but more. His reputation is diminished, yes, but the effect of that is bigger than not just wanting to send my kids to a particular school. It is nothing less than the de-godding of God, bringing him down. To diminish God's holiness, his uniqueness, his reputation is to say that God is less than God. To say that God is not all-powerful, all-knowing, all-glorious and worthy of eternal worship. To say that something else in this life, something else in this world can be considered of greater importance than God. Maybe some of us here need to reflect on whether we have been doing that same thing. Whether or not we have de-godded God in our own lives by elevating other things of greater importance. Last week we were reminded that God acts to save his people because of his reputation and holiness. And again, we are reminded here the same thing. God acts to restore his holiness and reputation before his people and the nations. God doesn't act first for his people. He acts first for the holiness of his name. And just as we saw last week, what the nations and our world needs to know, the only hope the world has is to know God as he truly is. To know that Yahweh is Lord. Last week he did that in restoring his people from shame and exile to renewed lives and restored and resurrected to new life with his spirit living inside them. This week we see the same effect but through the total destruction of Gog and Magog. Through God's victory, God will make known his holiness and reveal who he truly is. That Yahweh is Lord. 
Uh, chapter 38, uh, 39, sorry, verses 8 to 24, uh, detail the extent of that victory, as we heard in the reading before. Right? We read in verses 11 to 16 that the dead bodies of Gog and his forces will litter the land for a very long time. It will take seven months in total to finally clear the land of all of the dead and bury them properly. Right, in verses 17 to 20, you've got this rather gruesome picture of judgment as well. The birds of the air are invited to feast upon what we first think are the dead bodies of animals like rams and lambs, but in verse 20, it actually turns out to be the bodies of the dead. This is a picture of shame and dishonor on the dead. And then look at the final verses of our chapter, chapter 39, at the glorious results for God's people when God acts to restore his reputation. Have a look at chapter 39, verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in the land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Now, it's super important here to get the order of these events right in verses 26 and 27. So work with me for a second. Keep your eyes there. Uh, have a look at verse 26. What's happening here? God's people will forget their shame and all the treachery that they've done against God. They will forget the sins that they have done against God. But when will that happen? Verse, middle of verse 26, when they dwell securely back in the land and no one will make them afraid. But another question, when will they dwell securely in the land? Verse 27, when I have brought them back from the exile, gathering them from their enemies' lands. And here's the important foundation for all of this. And through them, I have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. You see that there? We have to start at the bottom. God vindicates his holiness by bringing his people back from exile. And when they are back in the land, they dwell securely. And when they are secure in the land, they will forget their shame. See, the good gift of salvation the forgetting of shame is a result of the work of God to restore his reputation and vindicate his name. Every good gift of salvation comes from the work of God to restore his glory. The glory of God, the, the restoration of his holiness is the chief motivation for all that God does. And God's people benefit from that. These chapters can be tricky, especially if we're trying to pin down the details and, and interpret them in the light of current world events. But if we understand Gog and Magog to represent all of God's enemies, the message is actually fairly simple. All of God's enemies will be fully and finally defeated by God, vindicating and glorifying his holy name. God's people will then dwell securely forever. But let me return to the question I raised at the beginning of today. Uh, how do we know that someday this won't be ruined again? How do we know that when Israel are brought back into the land and, and when Gog and Magog are taken care of, 
how do we know that we won't stuff that up again? And the answer is context. Glorious context. What comes before chapters 38 and 39? The answer is chapters 36 and 37. Chapters 36 and 37, those wonderful promises of God that he will restore and reconcile through resurrection, the resurrection of his people. Out goes that heart of stone, incapable of hearing and obeying God. In comes this heart of flesh and his own personal presence, the Holy Spirit, and the guarantee of God's work in them. There is no fear of another exile for God's people. No fear of a second fall because God will ensure that it does not happen. The heart of his people are changed. And even when opposing enemies for, enemy forces gather against them, God will protect his restored people. This is essentially the same picture and pattern which is picked up by the Apostle John in the New Testament. Uh, Revelation 20 begins with the defeat of Satan, a defeat that ultimately happens at the cross and is secured at the resurrection of Jesus. And then in verse 4 and 5, you have the resurrection of believers as well. At which point, as we have read out to us earlier, in chapter 20, verses 7 to 8, you have Satan appearing again, this time with Gog and Magog for final battle. Ah, familiar names. They surround the people of God, but just like in Ezekiel 38, and just like in Ezekiel 38 and 39, they are clearly defeated as God comes down to the defense of his people, raining down fire and sulfur from heaven to wipe them out. You kind of get the sense that John is just looking at Ezekiel 38 to 39 and kind of copying the picture. And after the defeat of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20, we have the judgment of the living and the dead. And then in chapter 21, we have opening up for us that glorious picture of God's people safe and secure in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, Ezekiel 38 to 39 might be a message found in the Old Testament. It might even at first glance be a confusing message, but it's actually the gospel message of hope for all who trust in and believe in Jesus. It's a gospel message given to us by God and secured by God's work in his son, Jesus Christ. And it's a gospel message that secures our hope for the eternal future. And that eternity will be secured because God has finally and fully vanquished all of his enemies. Now, there's so much we could say about this, but for the sake of time, let me just summarize a few big things for us to take away. First, the gathering of God's enemies against God's people might be a scary thought, right? It might be a scary moment. It might bring about fear. Already, we know that there are pressures in our world against believers. We're riding a, a rising tide of anti-Christian sentiment, of a, of a culture which is turning away from its Christian foundations and turning to attack the church. It's not quite Gog and Magog, but sometimes it feels like it's coming. So first things first. This passage reminds us that God is still in control. So in control that even the enemies of God act according to his plans 
and purposes. God is the one with the hook in their mouths, moving them about. So no matter what happens to believers, we can face it without fear, without worry or anxiety, because we know that God, our Father, is in control. Second, we know that our God is going to win. Jesus has already secured victory on the cross. The the final battle uh, seems more like a formality at this point. And we can expect God to win in complete and total victory. This won't be a contest of equals, but a smashing defeat of God's enemies. Third, the destruction of God's enemies will be total. The world is set against God. The world and all of its temptations and trappings will be totally wiped away. Friends, there are only two sides to be on. You're either with God and his son, Jesus Christ, or you are against him. There's no middle ground. Maybe some of us here today need to make a clear commitment on which side we are. I know that some of us here today have one foot in both worlds, trying to tread the world, uh, trying to tread the, trying to get the best of both worlds. Can I ask you, as a point of reflection, does your life look distinctively Christian? Or do you just simply turn up to church on Sundays? How does your life look? Or does it just mirror what everyone else is doing? Because if it's mirroring what everyone else is doing, you may be on the wrong side of the final battle. But fourth, if you are with God, by believing and trusting Jesus as Lord and King of your life, then you can live today knowing that you have this eternal security. God will win. There's no question about that. And God's children will stand on that final day as he wins the victory for us. What great comfort for believers, no matter what faces us in life. This grand truth that we've heard today, perhaps best summarized by the Apostle Paul. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God for that. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we look upon this defeat of Gog and Magog, as we see its simple and clear message that you are the victorious one, help us to be on your side. Help us to trust and follow your son, Jesus. Help us to be living not for this world, but for you. And then give us great comfort when it feels like the enemies are at the door when it feels like this world is in opposition to your people, help us to not respond in fear or anxiety. Help us to not respond in fighting, 
but with quiet trust and comfort. To know that you are the one who is totally in control. You are the one with the hook in their mouths. And Father, thank you that it's you who are in control. You, For you are our good God. We pray that you'll help us to keep listening to you and hearing these things for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.